This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Now, just a warning that today's big question is one for more mature audiences. This discussion will engage some very personal, important, and at times controversial issues in our world. So even if you disagree, that's fine. Let's start a thoughtful conversation on these important questions. And today's big question, is the Bible's view on sex regressive? Well, our guest today is someone who has thought and written about this extensively, Dr. Patricia Wirakun. Patricia is a medical doctor turned sexologist and writer. She was formerly the director of the graduate program in sexual health at the University of Sydney. And Patricia is known both nationally and internationally as a sexologist, sexual health educator and researcher. She's the author of several books, including Teen Sex by the Book, Let's Make Love and The Best Sex for Life. And she joins me now. Please welcome Dr. Patricia Wirakun. Thank you. Well, welcome, Patricia. It's wonderful that you can join us here today. Now, you're a Christian believer. Um, before we talk about sex, just tell us a little bit, little bit about your own story. Um, what convinced you to become a Christian believer? I grew up in a Christian family. My grandparents were converted in Sri Lanka. My grandparents were Hindu and a wonderful Welsh missionary converted them to Christianity. My grandfather was Rasaya Mutavelu Ratnam, but the Welsh missionary thought that was not Christian. So he changed it to Roberts. So I grew up <laughs> as Patricia Roberts, which was about as Welsh as you got in Sri Lanka in the 60s. Right, yes. But I truly came to the Lord when I was about 14 years old, when I was in a Methodist missionary school, and there was this wonderful single woman. She, at that age, I was 13, she was ancient. Now I realize she was about 32. But anyway, that's how I came to the Lord. And ever since then, I've never looked back. Well, what was it that particularly attracted you to the Christian message? You had grow, grew up in that sort of context, but what was it that made you want to make that to follow Jesus? I think it was because I was in the plantation. And at that time, we were we were growing up in a time when the British Raj were in the plantation, and they were very rigid, like the whites were not allowed to talk to the colors, were not allowed to talk to the Indians. And when I went to the boarding school, I had this white woman who was treating me as something really special. And when I actually drilled down, that was one of the things that made me think that, you know, all people are equal, and God is like looking at looking after everybody. And at 13 years, I think that was one of the things that really appealed to me, that God, in God, everyone was one. Right. And that was something that drew you to, to the Christian message. Yeah, at yes. the beginning. At the beginning, right. So you've been a Christian now for a number of years. We won't, you don't a have to... A very long time. I'm 67 now. Okay, you right. can say that. Okay, <laughs> yeah. We are going to talk about sex, I suppose. So age is not particularly uh, a real problem, I suppose. But now, you're a sexologist. Mm-hmm. Why your interest in sexual health? You didn't ask me what's a sexologist. Uh, okay, well... Yeah, that everyone would you like me wants to, to know. <laughs> what, is a sex, what does a sexologist do? know what a sexologist is, so you might as well ask it. Sure. And I'll give you the standard well, uh, you, answer. You want to take over? Do you want to you ask the questions as well now? <laughs> Sorry, okay. Why, happens, so what? happens, Robert. Okay, that's okay. It happens with me, you yeah. know then. So, see, sexologist, people ask, what's a sexologist? And I say, basically, it's somebody who studies and reads and researches and writes and speaks and does sex therapy. It's that holistic thing. It's not really about like one part of sexual health. Okay, so what, why your interest then in sexual health? 
I did my medical studies in Sri Lanka, and then I was teaching at medical school there, and I was one of the few female academics, because this was with the dinosaur age. And then, you know, what happened was that somebody handed me a book, Masters and Johnson's tattered copy, and said, you're it, you've got to teach the medical students. So I'm like, I'm married, but I don't know anything about sex. So I got a scholarship at the University of Hawaii, and there my professor was one of the world's best-known people in gender. And that's how I really started looking at sex. And I was with this wonderful Baptist church, so talking to the Baptist minister, studying in the secular university, it's a terrific opportunity to bring God's word and sex together. That to me was really when my twin passions came together, right, God okay. and sex. You speak regularly across the country and internationally about sex. I'm just wondering, how does your husband feel about that? I know, people always go to him and say that, you know, how does it feel to be married to a sexologist? The poor darling, he's an engineer with the fire brigade. You can imagine what it's like when all the fireys know <laughs> that his wife works in sex. <laughs> but, but he's such a darling. I mean, he's so supportive. And, you know, people think that he has a great sex life just because he's married to a sexologist. But the reality is he doesn't have much time with me because I'm out speaking on sex. Right. Okay, so you're talking about it. Yes. 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 Right. Okay, right. Um, so you're a sexologist and a Christian. Now, some people would think that these two are incompatible. Can the, Well, obviously they can be combined, but how can they be combined? What do you make I of that? I know. It's really amazing, isn't it? People think that, like, God is some kind of a cosmic killjoy and, like, the Bible is just a set of rules that just says, like, don't do it. I mean, just look at, look at Leviticus, for instance. I mean, it's like, just don't do it. And so, therefore, Christians must be some kind of boring, bigoted, homophobic killjoys, right? But the reality is that when I was, you know, in my 30s doing my postgraduate study and looking at the Bible and sex, I was reading a lot of sex books, and the Bible really rates high among the sex books I've read. Really? Because, yeah, it has a lot to say about good, healthy sex. Right. And I tell young people this because I speak a lot in unis and schools. And what I say is, look, the Bible starts and ends with a marriage. I mean, Adam, Eve, Garden of Eden, fluffy toys, um, animals, you know, <laughs> music, water, whatever. I mean, perfect marriage ends with Jesus coming back for his bride, another marriage at the end. And right in the middle, eight chapters of erotic lovemaking between husband and wife, the sealed section in the Bible. Who says the Bible isn't a positive document about sex? Well, we'll get to the Bible, this sealed section, in just a moment. But before that, let's talk a bit more about uh, the modern research mm -hmm. on sex. Now, you're an award-winning sexologist. Not you're, me, the program. Well, you were the director of the program, yeah, which was, was program. awarded Global Best Program in Postgraduate Sexology Education by the World Association of Sexual Health in 2011. Congratulations. That's, uh, that's a, that was a long time ago, but okay. thank you. <laughs> that's a, yeah. And now, you, now you're a consultant sexologist. What's the modern research telling us about sex and sexual health? It's, it's a huge area, but I, let me just pick a couple of things that I find exciting because I am a biologist and a medic. And that is the research that is being done on brain, on the brain issues around desire and love and long-term attachment. Because 
when I was in medical school, we didn't have the sort of sophisticated brain imagery studies. Now we can do the sort of functional magnetic resonance imaging. And so what we're looking at is the science behind sexual desire and falling in love and what does it mean to be in a long-term relationship? So when we talk about sexual desire, we talk about that sort of the parts of the brain that are driven by testosterone that gives us that I want of desire. And then when you fall in love, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure some of you are in love or you have been in love. You know that time you looked across at someone and there was that sort of sudden sort of cosmic feeling where, you know, you just looked and you had that palpitating, palpitating pupil, dilating, sweating in the middle of Melbourne winter type feeling. <laughs> I mean, you know, that was when chemicals just sprayed in your brain. And now we know that there's a chemical called dopamine, which I love because it's a reward and, uh, you know, it sort of drives you to fall in love with one person. So, we, you see, the desire is I want sex. When you fall in love, it takes all that energy and focuses it on one person. And I love the word dopamine, because basically it makes you dopey when you're in love. <laughs> See, serotonin levels go down in the brain. Serotonin levels go down in obsessive compulsive behavior. Love is an obsession. Same chemical changes happen when you have a cocaine hit. Love is an addiction. Right. And this is the power of brain love. And then that, unfortunately, for those of you who are currently in love, doesn't last for more than about 18 months. And so what happens? Do you fall out of love? You actually move from the passionate state to what we call a passional phase, when there are different hormones and chemicals that drive that oxytocin, which is actually the chemical that bonds a mother and a baby. That level goes up. When you're sexually intimate, that level of that hormone and another vasopressin go up. When you have an orgasm, it brings down the steeple, that if you're having a church. But, you know, it just goes sky high, and it bonds to people. And this is amazing, because to me, that is so beautifully congruent with God's word. Mm. So just to, say, just to reiterate or to, to clarify that, so you're saying that similar chemicals are released between an, a man and a woman having sex, uh, uh, between a woman and her child. Just in, for in that this, bonding. Just for that bonding. Bonding phase, oxytocin. When a mother is nursing a baby, oxytocin is the hormone that rises and we think is that sort of social bonding hormone between mother and child. And when a couple are together and having sex or sexual intimacy, mm. the levels go up. And if the more sex you have, the more you bond with that person unless it is just something that's totally unemotional or you're drugged or, you know, dope. If there's any bit of emotion, you bond with that person. And this is amazing because to me, that is so beautifully congruent with God's word. Mm. It's a fairly common view, I think, to consider God anti-fun, anti-pleasure mm -hmm. and anti-sex. So the famed philosopher and thinker Bertrand Russell wrote that the worst feature of the Christian religion was its morbid and unnatural attitude toward sex. So is the Bible's attitude on sex morbid and unnatural? The Bible's attitude to sex is that get out there, have plenty of it, have fun, but I give you a pattern 
for it. I mean, just look at creation. I mean, when God said, Adam, Eve, get out there and, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Look, hello, he wasn't saying plant apple trees and do mathematics. <laughs> he was basically saying, get out there, get naked and have plenty of sex. Right. I mean, like, it helped that they were already naked. But <laughs> the point is that it was God saying, get out there and have fun, people. I mean, look, just look at the created body. I mean, the man and female, our genitals and our brains are made, created for good sex. The genitals are just so beautifully complementary. Mm. And, you know, they're made for fun. So mm -hmm. God created us for sex, for good sex. And then he just said, look, Here's a pattern for the best sex ever. And that is, again, we can even go back to Genesis where it says man and woman are united and then they have a one flesh, naked and no shame. Mm. It's a pattern. So when in that pattern we have great sex. Mm. So why do you think that people have this view that Christianity is anti-sex or God is anti-sex when there is so much of it in the Bible? I think partly it's because God says, I give you a pattern for the best sex ever. And, you know, people, today's worldview, and this is, I speak to young people a lot, and I did some focus groups with young people for the book I wrote, Teen Sex by the Book. The worldview is if you desire something, you must have it. So, in other words, sexual desire in the brain says, I want sex. The world says you need sex. That if you don't get what you need, you're somewhere subhuman. Mm, or you're inadequate. You're inadequate. Kids actually say that. They say we are less than human if we don't have sex. Right. That's their words. Yeah. You know, and I have a right to get what I want. So desire, to fulfill your desires is a right. It is an irrepressible urge. The world tells us that if you feel this drive, then you must require sex with that person. That is lust. Loving someone is a pure, beautiful emotion. It does not have to be driven to sexual activity. This is the worldview. If you love someone, you must be in bed with them. I love you means I actually love myself and I want what you are going to give me in bed, the biggest orgasm ever. And I keep saying, no, love is a pure, beautiful emotion. My husband and I spent five years as, together before we got married. And I was an intern in hospital. He used to come spend nights in my room. And we never once thought of actually having sex because we knew that God's plan was that we wait. You know, ladies and gentlemen, it, today's world says sex, if you love, you must have sex. It's an irrepressible urge. I have been a doctor for 40 years, a sexologist for 30. I've seen people and read about people dying of lack of medicine, healthcare, due to exposure. Not one recorded case of death by lack of sex. <laughs> you can live without sex. And so when God says, look, it is powerful, but it is purposeful. And my dear children, when you live according to that purpose, you will have the best sex. Mm. And we're seeing the pain. I, we see that pain in our rooms of people who've lived a life 
with you know multiple affairs mm. or even cohabiting and then getting married there's research now that tells us that cohabitation before marriage or living together before marriage and then what they call sliding into marriage mm. leads to poorer marriage outcomes it's a very recent research coming out of america mm. from the marriage project or even couples who had multiple partners and then get married the marriage outcome is not as effective or not as successful. And so you, in your professional role, deal with some of the outcomes of that? Oh, all the time. Because, you know, we see couples who sit there and they've either just what they call the difference between cohabitors and make commitment to marriage, they call it sliders versus deciders. Mm -hmm. You know, you've slid into it, you haven't really made that commitment. And so you can slide out easier. Right. And so we see that. But then I, we see very often couples who've had affairs, been with people, and they can't get those thoughts out of their head. Because you see, our brains wire in memories. And you know, you've had multiple affairs, and you form those mini bonds. Mm. I tell young people, it's like having a tube of super glue. Every time you go bond with, have sex with someone, you put a bit of that super glue. You tear, you leave a bit of yourself. You keep doing that. You get married, your super glue tube's pretty empty. Mm. And you're confused. Mm. Well, as part of Bigger Questions, we do reflect on the scriptures. And today we're going to reflect on some of the Old Testament book Song of Songs. Now, this is the one that you referred to before, the, the sealed section of the Bible. It's a love poem dedicated to celebrate the dignity and purity of love between a man and a woman. The book's replete with beautiful images of the fullness and wonder of a passionate, sensual relationship. And it's a bit racy at times, Patricia. Is that fair to say? I, I think it's wonderful because whoever wrote Song of Songs got to be, have been a sex therapist. Right. Okay, so this is the Sexology first... Sexologist par excellence. Six, so ancient wisdom from an ancient... Oh. Sexologist. Uh, why, why do you say that? Why, why would they? Uh, you, know? you know, it's amazing that when we, when I reflected, when I, I was writing my second book, The Best Sex for Life, and I was reflecting on the way we as sex therapists, the, the, the techniques we use, mm -hmm. it's like, say, out of Song of Songs. Like one of the things we do is we talk about other focused pleasuring. Now, this is secular, right? I'm not talking as a Christian sex, sexologist. From, from my professional role, we talk of other-focused pleasuring, which basically says, be aware of the other person. Be aware of who they are. You know, just find out what is good for them. And then you read Song of Songs, and it just goes through parts of the body and loving acts mm. and that longing for the other person, which is like what we are teaching. The other thing that today in sex therapy is what we call mindfulness. And that is using all your senses to be mindful of the moment while you're making love. And I'm like reading Song of Songs and it's full of mindfulness. Right. And all the senses taste and smell and oh, it's so erotic. Right, wow. Um, <laughs> Anyway, well, let's have a look at some of it now, some of this racy, this erotic words of Song of Songs. Song of Songs 8, 6 and 7, which says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. What do you make of this? 
this passage here before Isn't us. Isn't it wonderful? It's so congruent mm. with what we talk about in brain chemistry. Yeah, in, I in, mean, what, in what ways? Okay, this we talk about the power of desire and of love. I mean, you know, the dopey feeling, it's the obsessive nature of love. I mean, why do people, I mean, people die for love. Mm. People kill for love. Mm. And, and it's there. I mean, it's as strong as death. It's like grave. I mean, the one thing that is totally inevitable to all our lives, death. Mm. And so love is as strong as that. And we now know that this dopamine and that the reward system that draws you towards that sexual, the, the, the intimacy and the reward of being with the one you love is extremely powerful. Because, you know, interestingly, it's that same circuit that's used in pornography. Mm -hmm. See, which is why it makes porn such a powerful brain grabber mm. because it uses the same beautiful circuits in the brain that God gives us to draw us towards one person. I mean, hey, you go back to Genesis, one flesh. Mm. And this is the mechanism that our brain uses and which is then celebrated as love as strong as death. And jealousy, you know, that jealousy of God jealous for his people Let's talk about jealousy here, because uh, Shakespeare called jealousy the green-eyed monster. Uh, yet jealousy can be a, a two-sided concept. Mm -hmm. Jealousy can demonstrate, on one hand, how much you love someone, yet on the other hand, it could be considered insecurity. Mm -hmm. So is it appropriate to speak of jealousy in the context of love? I believe it's correct. I think it's a really great way. And I, I guess I can talk about myself because my husband, bless his heart, we've been married for 41 years and we've been together as we were five years friends before we got married. I mean, you know, he's a very jealous man, but his jealousy is more for my protection, not more, but it is for my protection. So he jealously guards my time, he jealously guards whom I spent time with, like when we were younger, like he would let me go all over the world. I mean, I'm a sexologist, mm. and sexologists are well known for, well, not well known for their morals, but never mind. And, you know, so I would probably spend time with some of the most gorgeous men. Right. But, you know, he, he would know whom I'm with, and he would be pretty jealously guarding whom I would spend time with. Mm. And I think that is a very positive jealousy because it's, it reflects God's love for his people. Mm. That jealousy of you are mine and I will care for you. Not the destructive of if you do something, then I will destroy you. Mm. Now, one of the things that I, I think one of the key accusations of the Bible's view of sex is that it's regressive with respect to its view on homosexuality. And you mentioned it's great to get married, and one of the key issues around mm -hmm. today is the issue of gay marriage in mm -hmm. particular. What do you think Song of Songs is saying to this? I'm not sure Song of Songs is really talking to homosexuality. Mm -hmm. It's talking clearly about the power of love, and it's clearly the main actors or players, they are man, woman, surrounded by their friends. One of the things I think Song of Songs is talking about or giving us there is the power of friendship. And, you know, male, male, female to female, male to female, brother, sister, the friendship. And I think one of the main problems today is that we, and again, I'm talking a lot from what I find out from younger people whom I interviewed quite extensively, is that we're losing that ability to form close, non-sexual, intimate friendships. 
You know, boys and boys, I ask boys sometimes. I said, can you love another boy? And they're like, no, that will make us gays. <laughs> Girls, can you love another girl? Yeah. But, you know, not too much, because then we are lesbians. Because girls, you know, we can love better than right. you guys. Yes, that's right, yes. So, you know, you know how it is. That's right. But, uh, <laughs> but the point is that we're, we're losing that. So, therefore, if you have two boys you, who are close, they've got to be gay. Two girls have got to be lesbians. But the Bible celebrates non-sexual, intimate relationships. And Song of Songs, I think, contributes to that. But you look at Jonathan and David. I mean, their love for each other, even Jesus talking to his beloved disciple. Those were same-sex intimate friendships. Mm. So the Bible clearly says friendship, same-sex, other sex is good, it's healthy. But when it comes to actual sex, it's male-female. And that sexual intimacy is according to the pattern for which you have been created, for which you've been given a brain, because the sexual response also is complementary, and that's the way it is. So is God sort of, you know, against homosexuality? I, as a Christian, would say God would not smile on or approve of two men or two women being sexually active, but is God against same-sex attraction? In other words, if there were two men who say, I, a man says, I'm sexually attracted to another male, that is not according to God's pattern, because the created goodness was Adam was attracted to Eve and Eve to Adam, male to female. But we live in a fallen world. And, you know, people make a big thing of homosexuality. But look, we are in a very fallen world. And it's not just sex that's messed up and gender. Everything's messed up. And the fact of having gender messed up is part of it. A very small part, really, but a part of it. And so today's research tells us that for some people, there is a possibility of a biological predisposition for same-sex attraction. But that is a predisposition, a desire. And you remember what I said about the desire mm. in the worldview being an irrepressible urge. But in actual fact, you can feel a desire, but you have a choice as to what you do with it. And so you can choose to be sexually active or not. Mm. And mm. that choice is what God would ask, require of homosexuals. You know, even if you feel it, you don't have to act it out. Yep. So, Patricia, we've, today we've talked about sex. So, in your view, myth or truth, is the Bible's view of sex regressive? Oh, no, it's retro. It takes <laughs> a... us back to what really matters, as <laughs> retro as me. So, so, given this, how should we respond then? If we think, okay, my view of sex is, is retro, what does that mean? It means that the Bible has something to say about sex, and that is good and healthy. And if the Bible has something to good to say about sex and that sex is to be celebrated, and God's supporting that, Bible's got to say about everything else too. Well, let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to the big question, is the Bible's view on sex regressive? From Song of Songs 8.6. Love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Patricia Wirakun.
Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.